Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And this is Praza Sandman, juggling your IVs and tubes all throughout the radio waves. Did you ever have to do those circus performance acts in high school? Not in high school, but I did have to dabble a little bit somewhere along the grade school chain. That's a fun skill to pick up. And for tonight's episode... We wanted to go one step further and talk about skills or abilities or appearances that are not only, shall we say, difficult to pick up, but so amazing that a lot of folks pay and go to see them. And of course, I'm referencing the lesser known aspects of the circus, the sideshows. Like Sideshow Bob. <laughs> and Mel, the lesser known. <laughs> well, yeah, so we're going to be talking about... Caught me by surprise there, I'll admit. We're going to be talking about circus sideshows, as well as freak shows, traveling shows, whatever you want to call them. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to cover. But we have a very special guest and an old friend visiting. A former circus sideshow performer who is now retired from that career and has moved on to broadcasting. Welcome, M. Hook. <laughs> so I'm going to get this off my chest Early on. Part of the reason yes. I know M for so long is back in high school, M had a really neat trick she could do. Yep. She could move her hands, lock them behind her back, bring them up and over her head, all without ever unlocking them. It was my own personal magic show. And one of the... <laughs> behind her back. Yes. From behind her back to her front, like a giant, you know, bucket handle. It's quite something to watch. Uh, especially at the tender young age of any age you see it. <laughs> Literally, at the age of 35 right now. M, did this have anything to do with your uh, 
your venture into the world of sideshowing? Like, how did how did you become a sideshow performer? Well, you know, I think that, I mean, I definitely think that had something to do with it. Um, you know, I mean, as you know, like, we were both in theater together, and I was a very, very theatrical youth in general. But I think having some sort of physical physical differences meant that when I was out of high school and was looking for things to do that were theatrical and kind of tapped into that interest, um, it did lead me, I think, in the direction of a place where those kinds of skills are put on display. Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with a circus sideshow, that's not unreasonable. There's not really a lot of them around. They're kind of a relic of a bygone era. Um, And I'm not even quite sure exactly when they completely faded from view, although we know the actual circuses themselves are now gone, but only three sideshows are left. And we'll give you a little bit about each of them. Uh, Sideshows by the seashore at Coney Island. Now, we've referenced this before, but Praz, I don't know if you were with us. Did you know that one of the first NICUs or NICUs was at Coney Island? No, I did not know that. Maybe I wasn't there. Anyway, so the very first neonatal intensive care unit was basically gained funding. It kickstarted itself by displaying the newborn infants as sideshows. Like, come look at these freakishly small, tiny babies. Huh. We can't see that being very good for the healing process. You know what? Counterintuitively, it was amazing for the healing process. Not for the babies to get all that attention. They turned into little prima donnas later in life. You don't don't really want to get into it. But... But in the early 1900s, Dr. Martin Cooney, County, Cooney, Coney. Oh, Uh, because Coney. Coney, uh, 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 I see what you did there. It's actually not the same Coney, though. No, it's not. So Dr. Martin Coney created incubator baby exhibits that he displayed on the island from about 1903 up until World War II. And one of the very first doctors who ever used incubators was actually a French guy who did it to, he took baby chickens out of them and warmed a baby in it instead. So it was a zoo hmm. baby. And this was kind of the earliest way to help save some of these previews from hypothermia or low oxygen or, heck, why don't you tell us? Because you work a lot more closely with intensive care units probably of all ages. I know you see more pediatrics yeah. than I do. Um, I haven't done pediatric ICU in some time, but uh, certainly um, have some experience with it. And yes, babies, uh, especially babies that are born premature and who are, quote, freakishly small as these babies are advertised, they tend to have a very high surface area relative to their body weight, more so than adults do because of this. With more surface area, there's much like faster transport of heat in and out of the body. So... You know, when they aren't properly warmed or kept near a reasonable heat source, they do lose heat very quickly and they do become hypothermic and that can be very dangerous. So um, having tools like this, I bet, certainly significantly prolonged the lives of many of these uh, young infants. In fact, he never he charged only the people who came to look at the children, but the actual parents of the kids, he charged nothing. He would take anybody Mm -hmm. and... There were several folks who actually trusted him more than the hospitals with their newborns, and he paid for it by charging, you know, five pence or whatever it was back in those times, a, a, a bright, shiny nickel. Because of him, other hospitals saw that, like, oh, this actually seems like it's doing well for the patients and in terms of income. 
and that's how they all opened up. So one one particular circus sideshow act that changed wow. the world of medicine. I love how they say in terms of income, not in uh-huh. terms of like patient outcomes or anything. I guess that's still a driving force. To be fair, okay, fair Great enough. Depression. I'll yeah. forgive them a little <laughs> bit. The next is the AMC television show Freak Show at Venice Beach. Uh, I actually don't ever recall having gone to actually see any of these shows uh, live, just from what I know on TV. M, I, it sounds like you're familiar with the Venice Beach Freak Show. I was, yeah. Um, it's been, you know, quite a few years uh, since I, I hung out down there, but... Uh, I, I've spent a little bit of time there. They, they they tried to get me to join them at one point um, before they had a TV show. So I uh, I missed that chance. <laughs> so why did they want to recruit you? Was it just the arm oh, trick? Well, you know, I feel like that's a good trick. <laughs> well, um, you know, Todd uh, Todd Ray, the owner, like a lot of um, sort of show promoters, he's, he's always looking for uh, different angles. And at the time, he had um, a friend of mine, Brett Loudermilk, working with him. Um, who's now a, quite a big sort of variety entertainer in L.A. Um, but that was about it. And so I think he was just looking for a couple more uh, live performers. And he knew me from some sideshow email lists. He knew I was traveling at the time. And he knew that I was transgender. And so um, I'm a woman who can grow a beard. And uh, he really fixated on that <laughs> and uh, was like, you can come be my bearded lady. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't really like growing a beard, though. So, as <laughs> so far I, as you I, know, I, has the history of bearded ladies now, been but, uh, just that uh, transitioning uh, men to women, or is that always how it's been? No, no. I think that's uh, you know I can't speak for every bearded woman um, in the history of sideshow, but uh, my assumption has always been, and based on what I know of sort of historic bearded ladies and, and what have you, okay, that, uh, they're more just here suit. They're just here suit women. Um, you know, uh, trans people might have, you know, trans people, I think, would have had other roles in the sideshow back sure. then, especially in that Depression era and those those early days where medical transition wasn't Invented. even really. Yeah, I it's think, a pretty new thing. <laughs> very significant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It wasn't. It's really not like, oh, you know, we're, we're working so. out the the kinks. This is that that's a thing that that people can <laughs> do. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it was a lot more yeah, you know, uh, exactly. hormonal syndromes or. Even people with uh, pros like some of yeah. the the sex chromosome uh, disorders, sure. so like Turner's syndrome, like or, mm-hmm. or Kleinfelter's, yes. or yeah. Well, let's talk about the different kinds of circus sideshow acts that you'll see. As long as we're talking about the Venice Beach uh, freak show, and then we can kind of have you chime in. And, yeah. uh, and you've worked in a number of different sideshows, although you said they're more it's cabarets and and solos. And I want to hear a lot more about what the what that sideshow scene looks like now. But as far as I know, sideshow entertainers fall into three broad categories. There's working acts, people who, you know, pound nails into their nose or swallow fire or swords. Did you say you? You're a working act? Yeah, I, I would categorize myself as, as a working act um, or a geek act, depending on, on your perspective okay. and how okay. historically. Okay, you know, and then but, there's yeah, self-made nowadays. freaks, who are people who have extreme tattoos or piercings, yep. and then people born with physical mm-hmm. abnormalities, such as, you know, Lobster Boy or uh, Siamese Twins or those kinds yep. of things. So that is that is a very, very broad generalization. You could fit all of that under one, say, big top. Oh, 
There we go. Yes. (laughs) Let's talk about the different ones a little bit more specifically. There's a couple sideshows I'm really interested in learning about or sideshow acts. And you just said you're a geek. And now I think most of us now have taken on a very different idea or meaning of what the word geek is. Uh, I'm guessing that you are not somebody who is uh, extremely obsessive about some particular fandom or very knowledgeable about a subject or area. Yeah, no, I'm talking about the uh, the historic meaning of the term for sideshow. Um, you know, geeks in, in uh, classic sideshow were not working acts because they were people who kind of just passively were weird um, or were willing to do things that were not perceived as requiring much skill. So uh, apocryphally, a lot of geeks in early sideshows were maybe drug addicts or runaways, um, not mm. people who like really like practice like sword swallowers or fire breathers, but someone who could sit in a box with a hundred snakes or, you know. So Chris Angel or anybody on Fear Factor. Uh, yeah, pretty of, much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Fear Factor people is a really good example. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, people who were sort of seen as not really having other options in life, Um, and I, I don't know how true that was historically, you know, I mean, it's hard to say with sideshow history because there's so much smoke and mirrors, but, um, I'm sure some of them were just, Sure. I I mean, I don't know if you can pretend to bite the head off. (laughs) Well, no, that, that's a thing. You know, it's, it's chicken. Now, (laughs) but then there's also other geeks who like (laughs) pierce themselves or pound nails through their body. Are are, are those geeks or is that a different kind of performance? Um, That, you know, that's geek. And uh, for sure, um, again, just because of the, it's more in the realm of shock factor than um, say like something a bit more dreamlike, like a sword swallower or a fire breather or, um, you know, something like that. It's a lot more like you would see it in a horror movie rather than a Cirque du Soleil performance um, nowadays. Uh, but that, that counts for sure, because they're causing themselves some Well, let's talk of, specifically about you know, this physical, physical harm. harm. So these, these human pincushions, um, yeah. what they're doing... Now, I, I don't know yes. the, the tricks of the trade, and I don't want to get you in trouble, but I'd love for you to share what you can uh, about us. But... Oh. Human pincushions yeah. may or may not have lower pain tolerances, although if you said there are a portion of people who are have substance abuse problems, that could certainly also account for a deadened sensation. Um, but when you do this, I don't think they do it in any random place, or at least they ideally shouldn't be. What they're doing is they're picking similar spots on their body. They're right. ch- actively choosing where they want these things to be over time and continuously poking the needles there. And what we see when we have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, frequent IV intravenous, u- IV drug abusers, um, and it's probably very similar, is you end up creating a fistula, this long tunnel of scar tissue. And as long as you keep that fistula open by continuously inserting something, you know, just like getting an ear piercing, but always and forever at every opportunity, uh, it won't close up. Mm-hmm. And that's probably how I'm guessing most of these human pincushions do it, is through selectively chosen fistulas, which does carry a risk of, you know, a lot of infections. It it does. You know, um, I actually, I knew a guy um, for a while. Um, Gosh, I wish I could remember his stage name, but uh, he was a pitch man uh, by trade primarily. But 
also a magician, and he did uh, a human pincushion act where he drove a hat pin through his uh, forearm. And I, I'd say that, yeah, the fistula is the correct, I mean, assumption there because he would do it and he wouldn't bleed, for instance, right? Like there wouldn't be significant blood uh, like you would expect from a needle going, you know, all the way through someone's forearm. Um, the needle didn't come out dirty or bloody, but uh, he did have a joke about the infection because people asked him about that all the time. Like, oh, well, does it ever get infected? Oh. You know, he said uh, that he just, he spits on his Ooh. arm before he drives the needle in. Uh, so that way, uh, that way all the, uh, all the germs get spit in their eyes and they think that another germ did it and they start God. fighting and they're too busy fighting each other to uh, yeah. go after him. I don't think that would work quite so well in a hospital. But okay. That's not how this, any of this works. No, I don't think it really... uh, We do not recommend doing any of this at home, by the way. Please don't spit on your open wounds. Kids, don't try this at home. Don't try this uh, anywhere. But of course, but of course, in reality, okay, you know, good. But he did drive it through. You know, it was it was a practiced art, and he would drive the needle um, through. And then, of course, like there's a few you know, daring time, so. and or foolish uh, pincushions who offer the audience the chance to drive things through, and that that requires an iron nerve uh, because that's what they're likely to yeah. hit. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, exactly. it's interesting. There'd be like there are some people and. Josh may have talked about this in earlier episodes or whatnot. Who do you ever talk about the condition where people don't feel pain? Oh, maybe when we were talking about the Bond movie. Well, basically, there's a um, there's a medical condition where people are born and they have absolutely no capacity to sense pain or any dis- unpleasurable sensation in any form. Um, which to most people sounds very nice at first, but you realize very quickly it's actually. Um, a very horrible condition to have because you lose your ability to detect danger and warning signs like your foot could be burning or someone could literally be sawing your foot off and you wouldn't have any be any the wiser to it. Um, so with that said, uh, I think people with that condition would be particularly prone to being these pin cushions, be able to take a needle literally going all the way through their body and not feel a thing. What would you say, Praz, if I told you there are people out there who eat glass? Um, <laughs> I'd say it would be a very bad idea. I mean, it sounds like a pain. <laughs> yeah, uh, see, yeah, you beat me to it. That's why he's the boss. So, Em, <laughs> why don't you tell us about one of your many uh, interesting talents? Yeah, so um, when I was working um, inside show, I worked under the stage name Glassarella Concarne. All right, so Glassarella Concarne. Uh, as he described it. So so my entire shtick was any kind of stunt that I could come up with involving glass. And, of course, one of the most classic geek stunts involving glass is eating a light bulb or a uh, maybe a particularly like thin-walled like wine glass or a wine flute. Um and I'd say I've done that, you know, I've eaten glass probably as a result, maybe close to, I'd say still under a hundred times, but definitely. So to be clear, the, the high, are you swallowing the these things whole or are you like biting into uh, them? Um, I am doing both of those things. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, oh, not swallowing. Oh, swallowing whole. Oh God, no, 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 no. There is a, that is a, that is a sideshow trick hmm. called, um, called uh, ostriching, but uh, human ostrich, but uh, I, I do not do that. No. Um, wow. that takes a lot of, a lot of time to learn. And um, without into, this like, remark being too cutting, how'd that work out for you yeah. on the long term? Um, well, you know, there's an old adage among glass eaters, um, that's, uh, eat glass and, uh, shit sand. Um, and two, uh, your dentist never looks at you, um, with anything approaching respect 
ever again after that moment, after they find out what you used to do with your teeth. Um, and uh, it has caused some uh, some tooth damage, I'd say, um, because, uh, you know, it's kind of like putting your teeth through a rock polisher every time, right? Um, but in terms of internal internal damage or anything like that, there's no soft tissue. There was never any soft tissue damage done, never any, any kind of serious medical complaint. Huh. Um, I feel like it would problems. do a lot of internal damage or potentially could do a lot of internal damage. I would probably damage. not do it again. Uh, that is a, that is a, you know, that's been an urban myth for a long time. Um, some people have suggested that you could assassinate someone in prison by putting ground up glass in their food. Um, mm -hmm. you know, first of all, the mouth is very sensitive actually, and can detect when there's any kind of like grit in something that we're eating. So you, you would, no matter what you were eating, if, if someone put, you know, ground up glass in it, you would immediately yeah. know, uh, that there was something wrong with the food, some kind of sand or something in it. But, um, but the reality is that, you know, as I'm sure, um, you know, you're both medical professionals, you know, the, the body passes things through it uh, fairly slowly. And so even if you have a, if you had a sharp piece of glass, obviously that's not ideal um, because it could get stuck in the, in the intestinal tract and, you know, cause a perforation like a needle or a, you know, toothpick or something um, could do. But as long as it's thoroughly ground and there's no, um, no sizable pieces that are, that are large, they'll pass so slowly oh. that, they never build up the friction necessary to, to damage the tissue. Um, and in my case, I was very thorough. I would always make sure that um, what I was chewing was, oh, was fully ground down. Makes me shudder. I, <laughs> I mean, I know it's a light bulb, it's a, but it's a sound, uh, it sounds like a bad you idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, again, I, w I don't think I would recommend it to anyone um, who values their teeth. Um, so let's let's if, move from light bulbs briefly to source. I used to be of the impression, just because I don't trust circuses source, and yeah. carnivals, I I enjoy them, but I certainly don't trust them. No offense, my my dear friend, but um, I always thought they were just collapsible swords for a very very long time, and it <laughs> no, turns out I could not have been more wrong. And this is. This is a skill and an international association and apparently a lifestyle for at least 300 some odd people. Really? Yep. Yeah. Huh. They even what have day a is that? Um, it's the last Tuesday in February. Yep. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, no, sword swallowers are great. Um, they're quite the fraternity, too. They, um, you know, I'd say they're second to magicians in terms of like how well they all seem to know each other and the amount of effort they put into their work. Um, I think they're probably, you know, probably the best off sideshow performers out there right now. Joint commission. So there's like a, sword swallower, wow. you, yeah, but there's the, the association, you know, they will, um, they're very specific about who they will sort of recognize and certify as a sword swallower. They don't want, but also because they don't want any random, you know, a person with a with a long neck and a dream shoving whatever they can down there to try and make money. That guy looks like he's got a long neck and a dream. Uh, oh, he's a real giraffe enthusiast. So the Sword Swallowers Association recognizes those who can swallow a non-retractable yeah. solid steel blade at least two centimeters wide and 38 centimeters long. And the very first time it was ever featured in the U.S. was at the world-famous yep. 1893 World yes. Columbian Exposition 
also known as the Chicago World's Fair. The same one with Devil in the White City, H.H. Holmes and a whole bunch of other stuff. But yeah, very first Sword Swallower was there. And then they kind of spread out like Starbucks through the U.S., joining traveling shows and eventually circuses and circus sideshows and it's it's almost like a tiny little armed Illuminati. Before I I go into what yeah. medical things mm-hmm. are about this, and it's yeah. quite surprising. What's your experience? Is this something you ever tried to do, or did you know any? Did you work with any sword swallowers? Presumably, uh, yes. I mean, I've worked with some. I've definitely worked with some sword swallowers. Um, you know, uh, again, I mentioned a, a fellow named Brett Laddermilk um, before, although we've never had the chance to. Um, perform on the same stage together um we are uh, acquainted and uh, sort of exchange some ideas on various um potential new kinds of acts and things that a sword swallower could do and that could also involve glass um and uh, there's been a few others um who i've shared a stage with of course um and uh, they're all you know they're all wonderful people and it's a very dramatic act um very attractive act and they you know take their life into their own hands every time they do it um, quite legitimately, you know, they're like the acrobats, I think, of the of the sideshow world in that way. Um, but uh, you will notice, of course, though, that you know the sideshow association or sword swallowers association does not include sharpened blades in their list. Ah, it's always blades. the loopholes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. You know, that's that's how they avoid. I think they they still take their life into their own hands, but that's uh, I think one of the ways to mitigate some of the risk that they undertake. Um, as you mentioned, it's a lot of skill involved and a lot of that's not just swallowing the sword itself, but what to do and how to move once it's in there. Swallowing is by and large an involuntary reflex. And the last thing you want, I imagine, Um, would be your throat just casually seizing up around a blade, sharpened or not. Uh, that's absolutely a concern. And uh, another concern that I've heard sword swallowers mention, uh, time to time backstage is... Um, you know, what is involved in taking a bow. It's a common stunt. You'll see a sword swallower perform once they have the sword um, in place. You know, they'll bow at the waist uh, to like a 90 degrees. And it's it's very dangerous every time they do that because if they don't keep their back, you know, like ramrod straight, um, that sword could, you know, get bent and could poke them and, punk, you know, perforate their uh perforate their esophagus so depending on how long it is or perforate their stomach if it's long enough um it is i mean let's get you two talking how similar mm-hmm. are intubating somebody uh which is usually done in you know involuntary for them or externally versus swallowing a sword which is mm-hmm. much more uh actively engaged so intubation is essentially the main difference between intubation and sword swallowing is that sword swallowing you stick a foreign object into the esophagus. Uh, intubation is sticking this foreign object, a plastic breathing tube, uh, into the trachea, the other tube. Uh, I will say that both, um, both swor- inserting anything into the esophagus and into the trachea, both involve uh, eliciting the gag reflex, passing along that part of the palate. Um, and I will say that either way, uh, the gag reflex is a very, very powerful reflex. Uh, in order to be able to do this successfully, uh, people need to be very deeply anesthetized, even paralyzed, 
um, under most circumstances, or if you're going to do it awake, their their back of their throat and mouth have to be extensively numbed using a lidocaine or other local anesthetics. It's not something that can be done very easily, especially when you're uh, wide awake. And, and that's something that, you know, when people are aspiring sword swallowers are learning to perform the act, you know, that's something that they have to to wrestle with. That's it's probably the greatest difficulty a lot of them have is they are learning over time to suppress their gag reflex, you know, voluntarily um, and to make their throat do a lot of things voluntarily that are involuntary. And so the sword or training swords or whatever they're using to get to that point um, has to sort of be able to provide enough. My understanding is is that it provides enough resistance that they can kind of move parts of their body or move muscles that they would normally not move, uh, you know, again, voluntarily. It's sort of like um, I had a friend who had uh, breast augmentation done. And as soon as the implants were there and they were healed, they could suddenly move their pectoral muscles, which mm. they could never flex before, just because there was like a dynamic resistance against the muscle all of a sudden. Um, you know, same thing for me when I had uh, sexual reassignment surgery, I could suddenly like feel abdominal muscles that I couldn't feel before because again, there was a, a different structure down there now. Um, but yeah. yeah, they have to, they have to wrestle um, with that. Um, Josh, do you remember in medical school when, um, we had to practice minor procedures on each other? Sword swallowing? When, no, um, I missed that class. <laughs> <Two sword swallowing. laughs> What, what procedures are you referring to, Pros? No, we did not do sword swallow, nor did we practice intubation on each other, thankfully. However, we did, um, oh, we may have practiced, God. um, placement of what's called an OG or an NG tube on each other, which is essentially that you take, um, rather than a sword, you take a, like a rather thin, um, plastic tube, uh, lube Best it up and put it down ever. someone's esophagus. Uh, either through their nose or their mouth. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I will say, uh, the memory is very distinct. Um, <laughs> going through the nose is actually a little bit easier than going through the mouth because you avoid the palate, which is where most of the gag reflex comes. But it's still a very unpleasant situation. Your body doesn't want foreign objects going inside. And so it does everything it can to try to expel so, it. Um, so the British Medical Journal did a very, survey very of 46 sword swallowers. Well, they actually sent it out to 300. So I know there's at least that many. Mm-hmm. But only 46 responded about the kinds of injuries sustained and the things that would cause hospital visits. They did note in the study that <laughs> almost none of them came in with serious injury to the hospital and that the major injuries that oh, did yeah. happen were much more likely mm-hmm. when the swallower was distracted or swallowing multiple swords or unusual swords, like curved ones, things like that. This study won an Ig Nobel Prize in 2007. For those of you who missed mm-hmm. out on the neurogastronomy episode, Ig Nobel Prizes are yeah. awarded to sure. studies that on the surface appear ludicrous, but actually do contribute a surprising <laughs> amount of knowledge to the field. Um so 19 of these injuries were sword throats or just sore throats, usually from learning to swallow or performing too frequently or swallowing multiple swords. Huh. Then there's also about a lot of lower chest pain, yep. often lasting days that could provoke a pleuritis or uh, in, you know, muscle spasms. And that was usually treated by just abstaining from practice, you know, Doc, it hurts when I do this. Oh, stop doing it. 
only six suffered perforation of the pharynx <laughs> or esophagus. Three of them required surgery. One had a pneumothorax, a little yeah. hole in the lung. And uh, all of them were treated conservatively, uh, and only one guy got an abscess after that. I have to say, that does bespeak a certain level of professionalism that even among reported surveys, which admittedly are a small sample, uh, there's very, very few fatal injuries. And I think it it testifies at least to a lot of thought and training goes into this very unique field. Yeah, it's very surprising. I, I suppose that is true. So... Now let's play a a brief game. I okay. which came first, oh, no. sword okay. swallowing or endoscopy? I'm gonna say sword swallowing came first. <laughs> I guess endoscopy was so the very that. first endoscopy was performed in 1868 uh, in Germany. It didn't make it to the U.S. until quite some yeah, time later. So. We, uh, uh, again, early 1900s yeah. when people could also go to the sideshows. <laughs> so. Uh, 1868, German physician Adolf Kussmaul, okay. yes, pros, he of Kussmaul breathing, was getting more and more frustrated at not being able to see yes. deep enough wow. into the huh. esophagus of one of his patients who had a tumor. And he's just like, gosh, damn it. You know, I can't see, I, I can't do a good German accent. So I'll just tell you, he was very frustrated and wanted a better way to look. So he went to one of these circus sideshows and he saw that there was a sword swallower there and he stopped the man and spoke with him after the show and <laughs> convinced him to let him perform this experiment with a uh, pipe or a tube attached to a gasoline lamp and a mirror. And this swallower, you know, took this tube all the way down to his stomach. And, you know, this is how Kusmal sort of experimented on and piloted and perfected the technique that ultimately led to modern-day endoscopy. These days, we do anesthetize people for endoscopy as well, but that was an option in the 1800s. Also, uh, transesophageal yeah. electrocardiograms, or electrocardiography, also thanks to sword-swallowing community. Um, yeah. A different physician, M. Kremer, also a German, inserted an electrode into a sword swallower's esophagus to record his heart activity. Because as you mentioned before, the sword comes within about an eighth of an inch uh, away from the heart. So hmm. you're you're measuring the heart or doing an ultrasound of the heart from the inside. Yeah, we actually do this a lot in the operating room as well, doing open heart surgery. I think it's um, echocardiographies. Take a scope similar to what you would do for an upper endoscopy and insert it in a similar fashion. You're right. It gets very great views of the heart that are very helpful during surgery. So now let's let's move on to another. Let's kind of jump back into the working acts and another one I believe you participated in. You also, as, as part of your geekery, uh, would lay on a bed of nails or walked across. Yep. Uh, I, ha- you know, I, I have laid on a bed of nails before, but most of the... Um... Well, most of the bed acts uh, that I did were broken glass. Sure, actually. sure. Glass is um, sexy, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've done, I've done bed so you once, would but, lay on the bed, or you were, but, were you, uh, you walk, know, walk, glass, walk, walk walking on or, broken glass? I, <laughs> I was walk, walk, walking on broken glass. Uh, and stomp, stomp, stomping on it, and jump, jump, jumping on it. Um, I would, uh, sometimes uh, I would lay down, uh, lay down in the glass, um, either face down or chest down, and have, uh, if I had an assistant, they would do it. If not, I would try and pick out someone in the audience who wasn't wearing heels to uh, stand on my back. Now, um, would you like to tell us like here at home hopped, why that did not uh, leave um, you a different kind all of All kinds of things cushion. with uh, just, you know, several pounds of uh, physics, my friend. Physics. Um, 
much much like a bed of nails, there's a physics trick involved, um, and I'm not revealing any any you know ancient secrets. It's all on the internet. Um, you know, like for a pincushion, of course, it's surface tension. You have so many so many um, nails close together that this their combined uh, distribution holds your body up rather than allows gravity to pull you down into it. Um, but with glass, it's more of a fluid dynamic where you have all of this piled up broken glass. And as long as there are no right angles um, in any of the pieces, so say a butt or a neck of the bottle, um, any any downward pressure hmm. or downward momentum is going to, to move through the glass and then out rather than back up. Uh, if it moved back up, you would get pierced or punctured by the glass. But uh, otherwise, um, you know, if I stomp on the glass as hard as I can with my foot, I'm pushing it down into itself, and then that force is getting distributed out. Um, it helps, too, that it's beer bottle glass, because bottle glass itself is quite thick. Hmm. Um, and so the pieces do not come out particularly sharp. Um, you know, it might be sharp enough to pop a balloon, but again, you're not, it's not sharp enough to pierce the skin as long as there's I imagine no they force do that pretty heavily, right, before you actually do the act. Like, it. they make sure there's nothing so, sticking up. Completely safe. Oh, yeah. Yep, a lot of research. Um, and I, you know, I would prepare my own. It's not like I just grab a bunch of beer bottles from the audience and smash them. You know, I, I would prepare the glass um, in advance, um, typically. Um, and, you know, some people said, oh, well, you should at least get some beer bottles and smash them on stage from the bar. But I, I found that people didn't really care that much. Um, they're either going to believe that it's real because it is or they're not going to believe it's real. Um, they've made up their mind long before I prepared the bed. And uh, so I could go through and pick mm -hmm. out any any big dramatic piece. Also, another one I always like to see at sideshows, mm -hmm. fire eaters, because this is something you see everywhere. Fire eaters can get their own unique uh, condition or disease known as fire lung or fire eater's lung. Usually we yes. would just see this pros uh, similar to people who had been caught in, in, fly in mm -hmm. fires or near eruptions from a lot of smoke mm -hmm. inhalation. But fire eater's lung is just a yeah. little bit different, and that's because it's petroleum-based. Is this something you ever tried your hand at, Em? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I considered it, um, but one of the reasons I decided to specialize in glass routines was um, a friend of mine who would work under the name Mephisto. He's an old, wonderful man. Um, he was like, yeah, you got to be real careful or else you could inhale a fireball and stop breathing and die. And I'm like, like well, then we're not going to do that. So that wouldn't be very good, would it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, he's like, yeah. if you inhale at the wrong Definitely. time, Definitely. You see a lot of um, way, inhalational injuries really, in the ICU. You really ruin yourself. And a lot of other causes of pneumonitis. Um, so. And it, it, they don't always recover very easily. It sometimes can be a very long, um, long study. Plus, um, I'd say just to, just to add to fire breathing conditions, I'd say that there's uh, also um, fire breather's teeth which uh, isn't discussed much because people don't tend to see it until they're very old, like my friend Mephisto. But if you spend most of your uh, career uh, breathing fire or eating fire, mostly eating fire, uh, your teeth will fall out in your, in your later years because, you know, you're, you're burning them all the time. You're exposing them to a lot of heat and it causes uh, the enamel to crack over time. It causes stress injuries. It causes the nerves to sort of peter out a little bit. Um, so that's a, that's a thing that fire eaters need to take into account as well. 
so a study was done, um, a long-term study lasting from October 96 to January 2001 that examined 17 patients with fire eaters lung who had been hospitalized. And it actually then continued to follow them at three and six months. And uh, this was a study done in France, um, all throughout France. And they only examined fire eaters who use this petroleum-like substance known as curdan. Uh, and all of them had been evaluated within the first 12 hours following the initial aspiration of curdan, meaning them swallowing uh, curdan and it going into the lungs or inhaling it into the lungs. And then they in follow-up was performed, as I said, at three mm-hmm. and six months. And a lot of them developed lipoid pneumonia. And also it showed that, uh, let's see, most uh, about half of them developed pneumatoceles. Two, developed restrictive impairment of the lungs and decreased diffusing capacity. Um, Mm -hmm. But within six months, with the exception of some lung scarring, all of the short-term issues had cleared up. Uh, There was a pneumothorax that did end up leading to several blebs. But aside from that, everybody else came out relatively lucky. This is not like sword swallowing where it's a skill. You can't skill your way through a inhaspiration of petroleum. But again, from the very small amount of people reporting, it makes it seem like it's interesting. But tell me, as somebody who's worked in the sideshow, what's the healthcare yeah. situation like? Oh, Lord. Uh, in, in sideshow, it's, it's pretty terrible. Um, you know, there certainly aren't any acts that are providing medical care for you. Uh, no, no, no employer is giving you medical insurance of any kind. Um, if you're in a, in a static show, like a show that's sort of settled in one place, like Coney Island, you have the advantage of at least living where you work. So you can, you know, pay for your own insurance and, uh, work with, uh, whatever, whoever you like for your local doctors and sort of build your own healthcare plan. Um, but, uh, for a lot of traveling people, at least the traveling sideshow performers I knew, um, they work a lot for a certain set period of time each year, uh, between six and nine months, depending on um, what venues they work in. If they're working in cabarets, maybe longer. If they're working in carnivals, maybe shorter. Uh, And then they winter quarter. And uh, winter quartering is just going to a property, usually a ranch in Texas or some other warm state, and just hanging out and getting ready for the next season for a few months. And, you know, it's very easy for people in these kinds of positions, because a lot of people inside show are not wealthy. to not prioritize their health care, um, especially because so many of the stunts that sideshow people do are dramatic and frightening, and you're likely to have a doctor tell you to stop, but it's your livelihood, so you're not going to listen. And um, so people, in my experience, would try to get their health care done all in one big go. Um, so they would often be like, well, you know, this weekend we're all going down to Tijuana to get our dental work done, to get our prescriptions filled, to get our da-da-da, you know, and... Um, and it just always seemed like people were not really, you know, super healthy. Um, the one time I winter quartered with a group, they, uh, you know, the conditions were somewhat unsanitary because it was a property that they did, didn't live in most of the year. So they didn't really get as much care into it as they should have. And there was one performer who used to work with monkeys who was quite old. And, you know, he really should have been in a nursing home, right? You know, he's one of these people he can't get out of bed. He needs someone so, to like deal with his fecal matter for you know, it's it's not a very positive environment for medical care. And do people retire from this, or are you unique in that regard? Is this something that becomes a a career versus a gig? Uh, I would say that more people 
quit, um, then don't. And then the people who don't, um, you know, there's a couple different generations at work. Uh, uh, the people I worked with were often older, um, and they're still doing it. You know, they're still traveling. They're still working. Uh, some of them have since retired, um, in, in like the capital R sense of being retired citizens. Um, but, uh, but others, you know, they're lifers. Um, and you know, pretty quickly, pr pretty early on, if it's for you, if you're going to leave or if you're going to stay, you know, there's usually a moment where you're like, you know what, actually, this is not the life for me. Um, it's fun. People are great, but I'm out. You know? Before we wrap up, I do want to briefly talk about that arm trick and, and the reason you can do it is you have, uh, you have a condition that is associated with it. And that is what? Uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, um, in this case, um, EDS-HT, uh, um, which I believe is sometimes called um, benign hypermobility something or other. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, in this case, it's related to the production of uh, the tennyson protein and um, causes uh, what many people currently call hyper, you know, um, or what used to call hyperflexibility, now maybe call hypermobility. Um, some people, I think, are starting to call it hyperlaxity in uh, many of the soft tissues. How does that work for you? What kind of additional medical issues does it cause? Before I go into sort of the more technical aspects. Yeah, well, you know, as someone with, with um, an EDS condition, uh, I'm very lucky in many ways. Um, you know, I've, I've known other people with EDS, and they have to deal with uh, a great deal of chronic pain, um, you know, nerve, nerve conditions and so on, uh, depending on their type. Um, some people, uh, I, you know, I've known one person who is, is basically, um, you know, uh, gosh, it's an old word. I don't like to use it, but I can't come up with a, I can't think of the uh, correct word now, the more modern word, but like basically makes them kind of an invalid. Um, you know, they need to, it, it's a big decision to go outside and do and be active for them. Um, whereas for me, um, it's more, you know, I feel like I, I just age a little bit faster. Um, I can't be out walking around as long as someone else. You know, I go out with my partner to go to the grocery store. And if we're there for more than half an hour, um, you know, I start to feel a lot of pain in my feet, in my lower legs. Um, I can injure myself very, very easily in many ways. I bruise more easily. I, um, you know, I was climbing stairs once and um, developed uh, some like fasciitis in my Achilles tendon, I believe. So... Yeah, so let's talk very briefly about Ehlers Daniel Danlos. Now, it it is a range. It's not a spectrum disorder, but it is a genetic uh, disorder. So it does range from both autosomal dominant to recessive. But there are a number of different types. About thirteen of them. Um, the kind that you describe, benign hypermobility. Yeah. Benign hypermobility joint syndrome has a few key features. Usually, it's diagnosed in children yeah. or young adults. Uh, who yeah. have joint pain or hyperextension. And as yeah. you mentioned, it tends to be much more common pain <laughs> in the legs, such as the calf or thigh. Uh, rarely it will hit the elbows ben or the knees, yes. um, but it can potentially involve any joint. It yep. It's seen much more often in girls because their joints are more mobile than boys of the same age. And the younger you are, the more pain it's likely mm -hmm. to be when it initially presents because whereas teens uh, experience a brief 
period of improvement because their muscles and joints become yeah. tighter and stronger as they get older. So sometimes this is something you can grow out of, uh, mm-hmm. not commonly, but it is possible depending on which type of Ehlers-Danlos. Uh, it's seen much more often in people of Asian or Middle Eastern descent than Caucasian, and it is least yeah. common in Africans. Uh, that's not mm-hmm. entirely clear why. Uh, we know there's a genetic component. It's just we don't know which specifically yeah. or how they're tied together. But when large groups of school children are tested, as many as like 30% can have some form of hypermobility, and that is not nearly as often as Ehlers-Danlos is appearing. Generally speaking, is the healing process prolonged when you have this? You know, it's, I, I would say that it's, it certainly has prolonged or altered um, healing for being, being a trans person. I've had a number of surgeries, some, um, some cosmetic, some not. Um, and I do uh, mm-hmm. scar very easily. Um, I don't ke- develop keloid scars at all. Um, they're always very flush, very smooth uh, with the rest of my body. But um, there has been um, pitting in some scars. So the wound healing is slow, uh, similar to diabetes, but for different reasons. In diabetics, it's more an issue of microcirculation uh, malfunction, whereas in Ehlers-Danlos, that's a collagen disorder. So the thing that holds your skin together. So wounds just aren't as good at binding themselves back up. Now, the outlook for people with this condition, uh, again, depends on the kind of Ehlers-Danlos. If we're just talking about benign hypermobility, which is what we're covering today, um, some people grow out of it, and the syndrome rarely leads to arthritis later in life if it occurs early. But if it occurs late in childhood or in the teen years, it can end up provoking much more likely wear and tear arthritis. Uh, So osteoarthritis with aging, depending on how active a lifestyle you're living. So activities may need to be changed or cut back. And sadly, uh, they, well, sadly for me, they do recommend that you stop doing the muscular tricks that children may be using to entertain their friends as these can accelerate that kind of damage. The child in me winces and and cries at this, but the adult me says, please, for your own benefit, (laughs) no longer perform that wondrous marvel of anatomy. Damn. (laughs) Um, So that's it for some of the classic... Yeah. Uh, performing sideshows. <laughs> uh, join us next time when we'll talk a little bit more about the physical conditions that would provoke sideshow right. performances, such as multiple, yeah, uh, well, you know. such as the uh, microcephalic children or the Siamese twins and how they were presented and what those conditions actually were like. Um, M, did you get to work with any people who had those kinds of more physical uh malformations or disabilities when you were in your sideshow travels? Um, I did. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's Lobster Boy, uh, not the classic Lobster Boy from history, but a, another person who took his name. Um, I believe he's working under the name Black Scorpion now. Um, he's a magician, um, does card tricks um, with his hands, which is quite impressive. Um, I, uh, I had quite a crush on Lobster Girl for a while. Um, and also on uh, Swamp Girl, who was another hypermobile um, individual. Um, all very wonderful people. 
I was going to ask, what was what was your backstory? Glassarella con carne? Yeah, yeah. Yep. I um, I learned the 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 ancient art of uh, eating glass from, uh, again, a, a gang of traveling indigent mimes on the streets of Paris in 1938. Um, and uh, what we did not realize was that eating glass was the secret to my longevity. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just a stupid gag. But... Um, and that, and also uh, drinking Windex, um, you know, which, as the old joke goes, keeps you from streaking, um, keeps your clothes on. <laughs> um, on the streets of Paris. In <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that, kids. <laughs> um. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of really incredible solidarity among show folk. Um, it's a world that, you know, if you're willing to to put in the time and to, you know, respect, extend respect to people who've been there longer. Um, it can be for many people, an immediate family. And I, I don't think it's a mistake that uh, a lot of LGBT performers end up there um, all the way back through history, you know, Ward Hall, um, who's sort of like the great granddaddy of all sideshow performers. Um, he himself, you know, uh, left home as a young gay man um, to join the sideshow because he had no options. And uh, uh, and that's a tradition that continues to this day. And, you know, you would think that a lot of people from who are often from rural parts of the country, from the deep south, from Texas, would be ultra conservative and hateful. But uh, the reality is that the community is is very enthusiastic about embracing, uh, you know, human biodiversity um, and, and just diversity of identity in all its forms. And that was always something that I found very, very comforting. Even though I'm retired, I'm still close with a lot. Of- Let's see. That is great to hear. Now, we'll close out on one last uh, fun little fact. Proz, let me ask you. Let's say you were to run away and join and join the circus or the sideshow. What would your act be? What, what do you think you'd like to... Uh... Um, if I could do any skill... Um, or not even a skill, like... Yeah, what's your act? I don't know. Maybe, um, maybe jumping from very ridiculous heights. And like break falling well enough that I could not end up, I don't know, dead. <laughs> oh, you're not necessarily alone in that. In that, were you aware that there was a circus performing anesthesiologist? Huh? Really? So did he put his patients to sleep <laughs> as he was performing? That is a. Thing. That doesn't sound like much of a show. Yeah, he he had the one guy stand behind them with a hammer, and then he'd say, "Hey, watch this." Um, <laughs> No, so uh, back in 1899, so again, that same time when Coney Island was bringing in a Mickey sideshow and the very first, uh, well, one of the first sword swallowings was being performed in Chicago, James Taylor Gwathme, who was an a-, a leading oh, no. anesthesiologist, not just any random one, a leading one from Vanderbilt University oh. in the 1890s. He wrote the very first complete text on the subject that was published in the U.S. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, so the very first textbook in your field was written by this guy who, in his spare time, for kicks and giggles, was a circus acrobat. Huh, and yeah. he wrote a textbook on tumbling. It certainly puts me to shame. Man. The guy, I believe uh, he's the first one who came up with the phrase, more fun than a barrel of monkeys. <laughs> and he has a catchphrase 
Man, what have I been doing with my life all this time? <laughs> so uh, I just want to say, if if you have the idea of just you know yeeting yourself off of things and and safely landing, <laughs> don't give up on that dream. You look like a guy with a long neck and a dream. <laughs> I won't stop believing. <laughs> there you go. So uh, that's it for this week. Thank you so much, Em, for joining us and kind of giving this this insight into the, the circus sideshow world. Um, again, don't try this at home. Any of the stuff we've discussed today. Uh, and this show is produced by me with a lot of help from all my co-hosts. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes, along with any of the sources we used to research this week. And until next time, as always, happy Happy travels. Happy travels, everybody. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.